Excuse me. You're Monica. Monica Beardsley. Yeah. I know. Yeah. A friend of mine was in here last Friday. He got into some kind of fight. Had he got, like, uh, hair and eyes? Yeah, that's him. Mm -hmm. No, he didn't get in a fight. I was just hitting him. Why were you doing that? Well, personality disorder, and he was being friendly. Friendly? With my ass. That is my place where I sit. He was drunk and sweaty. Came out of the crowd. Touched me. So, I touched him back. I think I understand. You used a pineapple. That's an unusual weapon. Not really. Pineapple is the most brutal fruit. It's dense, heavy, abrasive surface, acidic juice that would strip the enamel from your teeth. Hey everybody, welcome back to Uncanny Cinema. We've got uh, what could technically be considered our second double feature. Uh, we did a double feature on uh, two terrible animated Titanic films. Um, and I don't know if this one ne necessarily counts um, because it's our first set is a grouping of short films uh, called Showpieces. Now those short films, three of them were combined to make kind of a loose film. Uh, also called showpieces, not confusing at all. Um, but so there's there's that, but we did watch all five of them, so it was its own kind of set thing. And then we watched The Show, which was an actual feature film that utilizes some of the same characters set in the same world. So possibly our second double feature or just kind of a grouping, um, you know, of, of the similar elements because we did do uh, did The World of Tomorrow where we watched three short films, and we also did the Outer Limits ones uh, recently where uh, we looked at two episodes. So I, I'm hesitant to call it an official double feature. But what this is, we are looking at showpieces in the show. And these are Alan Moore's first forays into the world of film, officially. Um, anyone who is a big comics fan knows, or just a fan of Alan Moore uh, specifically, knows that he has very much distanced himself from uh, the films made from his work, um, you know, due to his own varied positions and uh, lines in the sand and grudges, um, and also due to some, you know, shitty business practices along the way by, you know, different parties. Um, but he didn't really want anything to do with V for Vendetta, Legal Extraordinary Gentleman, From Hell, uh, Watchmen. He's been pretty critical of all of them. I think the only thing he's ever really been positive on that I understand that was adapted from his work was an episode of, I think it's Justice League or Justice League Unlimited uh, yeah. from the DCAU. They did an adaptation of uh, For the Man Who Has Everything which is one of Alan Moore's, you could argue, one of his best, but he has so many, so it's hard to say. But, you know, certainly certainly top half. Um, but that is a, a really touching Superman story. And, uh, and they adapted that into a really good animated version. I mean, it's, it's, it's very faithfully ad adapted, so I can, I, it's not surprising that Alan Moore would be like, yeah, you got it. Um, but uh, I am a big fan of Alan Moore. I have read virtually everything that he's published, at least in the comics medium. I was just mentioning to one of our panelists that uh, 
outside of like some of his prose stuff and then maybe some like rando single issues I've read like any limited series he did, any ongoing series he did, any graphic novel, any like handful of issues that kind of told some sort of story. Um, so really, I've read the bulk of his stuff. Um, he's one of my favorite writers. Um, and then our panel is made up of people who are familiar with his work and familiar with another um, artist's work who's relevant to uh, this discussion. So that'll come into it. Um, but yeah, so Alan Moore hasn't really wanted anything to do with film as far as adaptations of his work goes, but that isn't to say that he's uninterested in film. I mean, he's interested in just art, period, and um, he actually did a series, one of the last series he did was a Cinema Purgatorio, which went into a lot of, like, Hollywood stories. It was sort of... Uh, Kind of similar to the show and show pieces of this kind of like dark noirish world, but then you would like watch stories about Hollywood or kind of like riffs on Hollywood within this theatrical setting. Um, so he's he's had a long interest in film, and uh, and in case you didn't know if you're a comics fan or not, he actually is retired from comics, or at least that's what he maintains. So he some of the last works he did. Um, I'll, rat, I'll rattle off some things here coming up, but some of the last works he did uh, were he wrapped up the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, gave a conclusion to that, and uh, Cinema Purgatorio was going on at the same time. So he wrapped up that and wrapped up League, which had been an ongoing you know, 15-year project or more. And League really ends in a way that's like, feels very final it's kind of like him like putting a capstone on his work and a capstone on this like fictional world that he kind of brought together um but yeah he said that he felt he's basically done everything he could do in the comics medium like you know any type of story to tell any type of genre pushing himself in different directions and there's like not really anything for him to prove or to do anymore and when I initially saw that, I was like, well, I like that he had this determination to, like, I'm going to, like, do these final works. That's cool. But then it also bums me out because it's like, well, no, I want more stories. <laughs> like in kind of a Bill Watterson type way. Like, make more stuff, Bill Watterson. Um, but that said, Alan Moore has shown an interest in continuing his career just in other mediums. And I am all fucking about that. And one thing is... Uh, so he wrote a novel some years ago. I have not read it. I don't know if I would really enjoy it from what I've you know read of it, but it's called Jerusalem. But he does have a book of short stories that are coming out, and I think some of them are new. Some of them are like old things he wrote called Illuminations. So I am looking forward to that. And then he is now taking his steps into film. And so he's always been a very visual writer, so that makes sense to transition into film. Obviously, this show is largely about film, so keep them coming, Alan Moore. Uh, I, I, I can shift focus from comics to film and uh, and, and be here for it. So, uh, so yeah, so this is the first thing he's done. He's worked with Mitch uh, Jenkins is the director, who I believe, from my understanding, is a uh, like a, mostly a photographer. And I think he might have done some music videos, but that these are his first kind of like films, feature films. And so they did show pieces in the 2010s. I think it was like 2012 into like 2014, 16, somewhere in there. So they did these shorts. And then Alan Moore was working on a script. 
and then they put it together to make the show, which came out in 2020. And it was in the midst of the pandemic, so even though it likely wouldn't have done big business anyway, that was just going to kill it even further. So, uh, so unlikely that many people have heard about either of these things, which is kind of what this whole podcast is about. And uh, one of our panelists I saw like shared this. Well, well, David, did you even know about these? I did not. Okay, so David, who is uh, you know a, a fervent uh, movie fan and comics fan, was unaware. And then I saw some people commenting on his feed about it, of like they didn't know either. So uh, it's all up to Linton here to keep tabs on what's going on with Alan Moore. <laughs> um, but all right, so that's enough Linton of an has intro. His, Linton has his uh, fingers on the pulse, not of <laughs> society in general, just yeah. Alan Moore fandom. Yeah, Alan Moore's pulse. That's right. Uh, it's quite faint. <laughs> all right, well, so. That- that's because it's through his sock that is also a snake god. Yes, his snake god. Yes. Eric looks confused. Do you not know the snake god, Eric? I don't. Do I want to know? Moore, <laughs> Alan Moore is a sorcerer of sorts, a magician, um, in that he, like, practices, like, magic, but he even, like, knows it. He kind of just admitted, admits that it's just sort of bullshit, but likes the idea. If you read some of his works, he goes into like kind of the idea of imagination being as real as reality and stuff. But yeah, there's a, he doesn't really ascribe to any kind of religion, but he does like kind of jokingly claim he worships like basically like this snake God that it's like known in history was just like someone basically with a sock puppet like like but they like made it to look like a snake so that the snake would like move or like hiss or maybe say shit i don't know but so i think he like says that that's his god because i think he likes the kind of just ludicrous idea of choosing a god that is based purely in fakery Mm -hmm. so yeah uh, his name is glycon there you go well that's pretty funny all right, so um, yeah, as far as digging into these, I'll just say that uh, show pieces and the show are they're very noirish. They um, are set in kind of like dark underbelly world. the The show goes into like a detective narrative. Show pieces is much more dreamlike, but the show uh, has like dreamlike aspects to it. And I'll just get this said right out of the gate. There's a very clear David Lynch influence to all of this, but particularly show pieces, and then that kind of seeps into the show. Um, as far as the cast goes, uh, I don't think there's really anyone that anyone American would have heard of or seen in much. There's a couple character actors I recognized. Uh, there's like a gangster guy in the show who actually is in The Fifth Element, I saw. You know, I recognized him. And there's a cabbie guy in the show who I know I've seen him in a bunch of character roles, this British shit. But, um, I mean, the, the actors are good, but I'm not going to list them all just because I don't think anyone's going to, like, recognize them. Uh, the show does have a guy named Tom Burke, who uh, I think has popped up in some stuff. I saw that he played Orson Welles and Mank recently, so that's probably his uh, most prominent role as far as, like, that people would know. And then uh, Alan Moore shows up, the man himself shows up in both as Frank Medderton. 
So we will talk about that uh, as we go along here. So uh, Alan Moore not only wrote this, but uh, gets to act in uh, both the short films and in the feature film. All right, not a whole lot of background to dig in on this. There's some other things we can go into as far as plot, characters, and everything else that's happening. And I've been talking at length about my love of Alan Moore. So we will go into our cast here and get moving. So uh, coming back, uh, we've got Eric to uh, delve into this uh, nightmare world with us. Hello. Hey. And then uh, the man who uh, knows the name of snake gods, Glycon, uh, David, uh, he is joining us here. Uh, His encyclopedic knowledge will surely come in handy for this episode. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey. All right, so um, it might. I mean, I uh, did you guys both watch it in like the watch show pieces first? I would assume. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so it might make sense to just like do it, do those first, because that's that's the introduction to this world. That's those were released first, and there is a a narrative that uh, you know comes together in those films, and then that narrative spills over into the feature film, and so uh, just it would make sense to do it in that order. So, uh, yeah, what do we make of showpieces? I enjoyed showpieces more than the show. Okay. Uh, uh, they were all very weird after the, uh, I think I was one out of order. And so for a moment, I thought they were unrelated. And then it all came together. Because uh, you have to watch them in order, mostly. Um yeah, I, but, I, I mix up the order on two of the things, but... Yeah, two and three yeah. were mixed up. But, yeah. Yeah. But honestly, uh, they were really weird. They were really fun. They were what I wanted out of Alan Moore. And you can't watch the show without watching them, I feel. I mean, you can. It just... Why would you? Um, if this felt like, instead of a collection of short stories, it felt like... Alright, this is a really weird movie, and it's very slightly less weird sequel. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you could possibly watch the show without it, because they do cover, in kind of like some recap moments, the high-level high points of what happened in show pieces. So I figured like a person could follow along well enough, but yeah, I mean, you'd still be missing out on some like key like aspects of at least mood and the idea of it. Mm-hmm. Eric, um, yeah, I think uh, I enjoyed the show more than show pieces, but I did like both of them. Uh, show pieces, I think, as cool as they were, I think didn't have as engaging of a narrative as the show. Although there was a, a lot of the good, like back and forth dialogue in moments, but I think overall there was like parts where I thought it was a little slow, and then when I got into the show, I thought it was like pretty engaging throughout the whole thing i was pretty invested in the whole investigation detective aspect of it um but yeah i i liked them both a lot the surreality of the of show pieces especially as it went on uh is what i really enjoyed uh the because the first part act of faith uh you said did you say the surreal reality uh the surreality Okay, gotcha. So, um, yeah, the first one, Act of Faith. There's no real... That that one's pretty straightforward. Thought that's what I was getting into. 
Uh, and whew, um, I actually felt uncomfortable during it, which and, um, during that story, I was also trying to, you know, have a little bit of a remove while watching it because I'm like, okay, this is Alan Moore. Every goddamn detail is important. The man, like in Miracle Man, he, um, he detailed what the graffiti on a bench should say, should say for his artist. So I assumed everything in this movie was, or, uh, or short film in this case, was going to be important. And um, I was trying to look for all that, and then I got lost in it maybe like 10 minutes in. And I realized what was going to happen, and I'm like, oh no. And that didn't help. Like the uh, actress uh, Siobhan? Siobhan? How, how do yeah. you say that? I think that's uh, how you pronounce it. Yeah, uh, she was great. Um, really got the uh, emotion across. Uh, loved it. Yeah. So um, as far as like a loose narrative goes, we have a reporter who is uh, named Faith, who's trying to have like basically a sex game where she's pretending that she's gonna like hang herself in the closet, and she has a lover who's gonna come and rescue her, like dressed up as a paramedic, and it's like all part of a planned thing. And then in uh, in very true Alan Moore fashion, but also kind of almost plays like the ending of a Tales from the Crypt episode. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like tied up in the she's tied herself up in the closet. She has a noose around her neck. She put a gag in her mouth, um, and she has like handcuffs on. And you know all this is like prepped, and you know she knows what she's doing in theory and everything. Um, and then she gets a call on her answering machine. Uh, which is the guy saying like, well, don't start. There, there's been a car accident. I can't get there in time, you know, and um, and so she freaks out. So, you know, it plays very uh, almost like campfire tale too. Uh, you know, uh, Tales from the Crypt, but also kind of like a dark adult campfire tale. And so then it seems like she has died and she wakes up in some kind of gentleman's club and then we're in just this kind of like dark, surreal reality. And then later we meet uh, Jimmy, uh, who is a guy who comes into this same gentleman's club. And so like the, the films are split up. There's uh, Act of Faith, which follows her uh, initially. Then Upon Reflection is when she gets there. Um, Jimmy's End is when Jimmy shows up. A professional relationship is when we meet the people who run this gentleman's club and then his heavy heart goes back to Jimmy and uh, has like kind of an on uh, a lengthy sequence with him and a couple of like tormentors. So the narrative, I would say, is pretty loose in show pieces, but it is there. So, uh, yeah, whatever we want to dig into on that, we can uh, start doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, in the first one, I can definitely agree that the the sequence where sh- she realizes that or gets the message on the answering machine and it's uh, starting to ch- is, is very effective. Like you actually feel that, um, and I think that's yeah, pretty well shot and edited. And it is just like yeah, this very like yeah, you're right. Like tells me like a very ironic twist turn, and it's you know, it's I think like less than 10 minutes the whole thing so it's not even yeah. like you get much in the way of like the build-up but it's still like i think stands alone as a pretty good work um so in that first one um in act of faith 
one of the things I found interesting was the way of, like, while she was on the phone, uh, things like that, uh, the way they uh, focused on uh, just her face and everything else was uh, blurred. Um, that happened a couple times. Uh, I think that's called bouquet. Bouquet? Um, but there were some interesting directorial choices uh, that were done and those were one of the things where I was like is this uh, being artsy for artsy's sake or is this a very clear choice made by the uh, director and the writer um, also I really really enjoyed uh, when she pulled out a CD, popped it in and they focused uh, really well on uh, that little CD player uh, played with the whole diegetic, not diegetic sound thing because it starts off with her picking one of her favorite CDs, I guess, and pop music coming on, and then it's this whole sequence of her getting ready. Um, but by then you start thinking about what's about to happen. Um, and it like starts off all happy and stuff. She's getting ready, and he sneaks that in. He uh, sneaks in the, oh no, something horrible's about to happen. <sighs> you love it to be. Oh yeah, no, I did. <laughs> I, I I was upset by the end of that when I was like, do I want to watch the rest of these tonight? And then I did. So how about once we, uh, once we get to uh, the Gentleman's Club, which is called St. James End. What do we make of all that? So, the first one there was, uh, I guess, uh, like an eight-minute one. That one, um, I was very confused by what was going on. I mean, I got that they were probably in hell, but I was still confused by what was going on. I do like that um, Nick, I believe, his name was. Um, uh, Nicky Matchbright. Yes. I did like that Nikki Matchbright uh, takes the uh, plastic bag that she had had in her mouth and uh, keeps it throughout uh, the rest of the uh, shorts and is occasionally smelling it creepily or he's coughing into it. Uh, oh, I didn't notice that. I think once or twice he just holds it up to his mouth and is like, and then most of the time he brings it out and coughs into it. Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I caught him doing that stuff, but I didn't put together that he was doing it with that bag. Uh, yeah, he kind of uh, puts it over her head for a while, like uh, while he's uh, abusing her in that bar, and then uh, physically abusing her, and then he uh, keeps it for the rest of the uh, short films. I mean, I would say he's also mentally abusing her to be, and emotionally <laughs> abusing her. Yes, he's also doing that, considering she's, uh, she just accidentally hung but herself in But she has no emotions. She's dead. That's the point that he's trying to get across to. <laughs> Everything's going to be fine. He was, he was mean yet jocular. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, we, we don't necessarily have to, like, go, um, I mean, I feel like it all kind of, like, flows together as a, even though it's very loose as a total story so we can kind of like jump around or focus on specific details we want to we don't have to go like uh short by short so 
But did you have something there to be? Okay. Um, so when Jimmy comes in, uh, the story very much changes from... I feel like uh, Angel's story uh, is just those first two shorts. Faith. And, or, Faith. Yeah, yeah, sorry. No, you're good. Uh, yeah, I feel like Faith's story was just those two shorts, so uh, just under half an hour. And then it pretty much just switches entirely to Jimmy's story. She is just a bit player in the background uh, in his story, which I liked uh, once we got to the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in the show, she's referred to as a bit player by uh, Metatron. Metatron. Yeah. And um, she gets really offended by that. And I was like, oh, wow, these were made years apart, but obviously connected, and they very much set that up, set that line up later. Yeah. Uh, But then again, what, what, why would I expect any less from Alan Moore? (laughs) He's very good at calling things back and planning things out years in advance. It's true. Yeah, it's weird, because I didn't, um, because I watched the third one second it like it didn't feel like she disappeared from the story as quickly i guess because she's kind of in the third one when jimmy comes or the second that's the third one when he comes yeah. in and you know that but he's it's clearly like his story it's like him arriving at the nightclub and and then she's she's there so you kind of get the sense of like i guess more of a sense of where they are um yeah and then so when they got to the show and you know, you can see how, like, the narrative change. I don't want to, like, spoil it, but um, I was like, oh, I guess that kind of makes, like, it's probably, like, planned from the beginning, at least. Or or they just thought, like, if we're going to make a full length of this, we can at least, like, change this up because she does kind of, like, disappear from the narrative of the first ones. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, when I was in a Shakespeare class in college, and at one point someone... Uh, made a remark uh, about something not making sense and the uh, professor threw a uh, eraser at him and went do you really think that one of the greatest writers of the English language made a mistake (laughs) and so like with this I was just like like I said everything had to have been on purpose the way that narrative worked had to have been him going I'm going to do this entirely different different genre thing that's uh, kind of based on this and I'm going to set it up and I'm and also showpieces work on their own like as a uh, the five of them work on their own without needing any kind of sequel uh, they feel like they end they are creepy as hell and uh, once I started in the show, I liked that I got more of it, but it, I think it also felt like he, uh, could have just done show pieces and it still would have stood on its own. Hmm. Yeah. For me, it's the, like show pieces. Uh, I've watched them. This is the second time now. So it, they, at one point early on aired, or at least three of them aired on shutter. And so I got a like a week pass on Shutter just so I could watch them because you know it's like a like the free week pass because Alan Moore had films 
and that was the only way you could see them and you couldn't torrent them because they were that obscure they just were not out there people were like it wasn't even a thing that people were like putting out there and so it's like not well that we, not uh, that you would ever torrent anything of course not David. of course not uh i'm just saying that merely such a thing couldn't have happened um it's all hypotheticals um but uh yeah, so the only way you could actually see them, they weren't streaming anywhere else, was on Shutter. So I watched, I watched those three, um, and I was eventually able to find the other two. Um, so I, I really only watched them like the one time, and then I watched them all the way through this time. I like them. I, I think they're interesting. I think it's cool to see more jump from comics to film. I will say I mentioned earlier David Lynch like so for me it has you know both of them but especially show pieces has very David Lynch vibes I think the cinematography the writing and the mood um, are all there and there's even like a dissolve with uh, red curtains at one point that uh, you know David Lynch will often utilize the red curtain motif in things uh, Twin Peaks and uh, I believe Blue Velvet has it as well um a couple other things but like david lynch you know I'm, I'm not i'm not always enamored with his stuff uh and so show pieces is sort of a grab bag for me where it's like i'm liking parts of it as it goes i'm liking bits and pieces but ultimately is the narrative adding up to something that i'm like 100 percent on board with or satisfied with so that's kind of the frustrating thing for me i, I like the journey of it but I don't know if it necessarily like is a complete package, which is probably why I'm siding with Eric on the like enjoying the show more. Not to say the show is like without flaw, but I enjoyed the show more as like a coherent story narrative. Uh, for me, the only thing that fell apart was, and it didn't even fall apart, was the fifth part, his heavy heart. Um, wasn't quite as interesting to me as uh, when Jimmy first comes in and is completely confused about where he is. He's at this bar, recognizes with the TV and a couple of other things that uh, it, he remarks that uh, this isn't, he, he didn't think a bar like this would still exist. Um, and as he finds out more, uh, dances with. Uh, as he dances with Faith, Faith uh, meets uh, Nikki. All of that when Nikki is arguing with uh, Metaron, um, and they go through their entire uh, God and uh, the Devil shtick. All of that I love. Um, also, creepy clown. There was a creepy clown. There was a creepy clown. And uh, creepy clown was real creepy in part five. Um. Yeah, I, I, I. That's where the show fell apart for me. It didn't have enough creepy clown. Mm. I mean, it still had Alan Moore as God, but no creepy clown, <laughs> or maybe forty-five seconds of creepy clown in the entire damn movie. Yeah, he what he didn't really. Yeah, because I, I do remember seeing him, I think. But yeah, he didn't really have anything to do. I don't think he had any lines. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, probably not. In uh, in which part? In the show. In the show. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a different actor for one thing. 
the creepy yeah. clown is a different actor, um, which you know kind of sucks because all the other people carry over that they bring. So I'm not sure if just that guy didn't want to do it. Uh, I think he has. Doesn't he have some lines in that court dream sequence? Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. He okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's only in like two or three moments of the movie, yeah. um, but it's you know, and they're short. Um, but yeah, he was great in the in the short in, in, in show pieces in that scene. I think that really like, you know, carried the whole. I mean, that was most of that final installment. Um, he was very menacing. Yeah, and and funny, and like the the acting was really good. And the, the lines were great, so. In good Alan Moore fashion, uh, that fifth piece really uh, brought in uh, some ancient religion, in this case, uh, Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And um, I loved the interrogation. Uh, I liked the image of. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of the god, but I liked the. Uh, image of um, the god who eats the uh, wicked dead just uh, sitting there dirty eating <laughs> a nasty plate of food yeah and it was because they uh, called him like the dead eater or something yeah uh, and, they gave and, him a name oh, let me yeah. see um, it's uh, a, a fopsis um, which uh, that's how it is spelled um but I can't remember how they pronounce it. But I looked it up, and that's, I think, like, it's from mythology or something. It's some kind of demon. Um, yeah. I like throughout it how uh, down to earth, um, while still being incredibly strange, all of these metaphysical phys- uh, metaphysical aspects were. Um, Alan Moore as a goddish character with uh, a name that's very reminiscent of uh, the uh, voice of God. Um, just basically oh. having painted oh. gold skin. Yeah, what, uh, what's the what's that referring to, David? The uh, voice the of vo- God. Metatron. Isn't that... Oh, right. Well, that's the, that's the voice... That's, that's the name of... Or the voice of God in Dogma. But is that the biblical? Yes. Okay. All right. I mean, that it would make it would make it, sense, but I've never I've never read it. Well, I'll tell you why because I was wondering what Moore was trying to do. So, for anyone listening, Alan Moore's character is um, Frank uh, Metterton, uh, Frank Metterton, and uh, he is a comedian like from the fifties through seventies or something. And he has a partner named Nikki Matchbright. So it's Metterton and Matchbright. Um, well, they kind of set it up in this, you know, hellish type purgatory world, whatever, that these two partners are like God and the devil. Um, and uh, and they, they lay it on thick with Alan Moore uh, with like they refer to him as I am. Uh, Matchbrite says that he's like, oh, you know, the type. And then he shows up and he's got this huge white hair, flowing beard, looks like, you know, the classical depiction of Christian God. Um, he's got a glowing face and there's this like all this light that shines out at some at one point. And then so I'm looking at it, it's like, all right, well, Nicky Matchbright. Well, like Nick, old Nick is often like a name for the devil, but also Matchbright, you know, implies flame. And just knowing Alan Moore's shit, it's like, well, he he does this stuff intentionally. There's a reason I couldn't figure out what his name was to signify. 
but no. So that makes sense. Uh, I was like, well, what, what is that? Like, I was like, what is that a reference to? And I couldn't figure it out. But so you're saying, uh, Metatron, is that what it was? Yeah. Cause that's, that's what Alan Rickman is in, uh, Dogma. Yeah. That's the, uh, angel who is the voice of God whenever. Okay. Uh, also, I, I'll just say that Alan Moore casting himself as God sounds <laughs> about right. <laughs> I laughed so hard when I realized that's what was going on. Uh, I was actually pleasantly surprised that uh, Alan Moore is actually a pretty solid actor, all things considered. Um, yes! Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we should talk about that. Yeah. Uh, if we want to switch into that, we can do that now. Um I mean, he's got a great voice to start, so that's always helpful. But yeah, I feel like he really had a command of, you know, lines he wrote. But like, yeah, I felt like he was, I, I wouldn't have assumed he'd be as good as he was and wouldn't even think that he would put himself in something. <laughs> but yeah. I, I was like, yeah, I was like, oh, man, he's actually pretty good. He played affable for a good bit of it and then uh, was able to switch to kind of stern. Mm -hmm. uh, both with Nikki and uh, later in the uh, show with Fletcher. Well, in the show, he gets like fucking creepy. Like he, yeah. he's like, I, I. Once we get to the show, there's something I want to talk about. But like, he gets like the Alan Moore creepy shit that happens in the comics sometimes. Like he gives himself at least one moment or a sequence like that, <laughs> and he pulls it off. Like, yeah. I like not just writing it, but performing it. Um. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I mean, I, I definitely want to hear what your guys' thoughts further on his, like, acting and everything, but I, I'll just throw out, like, he... I've seen him do some readings, like some um, uh, like some documentary stuff and behind-the-scenes kind of stuff. I've seen him, like, read Rorschach's journal, and he, like, changes his voice when he reads... Like, not the full thing, David, but, like, he reads, like, a passage, and he, like, reads it his voice changes like he's you know he's performing the character basically how he hears rorschach um it's really interesting i'll try to track it down and send it to you so i've seen him do that i've seen him do some things on this documentary for the like steve ditko in search of steve ditko or something where he does some like performance moments and i know he's done like spoken word like poetry performances and stuff in england at times I know he's been involved in bands and has been like the singer in a band, or at least like he will like speak while they, you know, play and shit. So like he has like to some degree a performance background. It's just not what he's like famous for. But yeah, I mean, that's like, I don't know. It was just super cool when you like are a big fan of someone as a writer. And then, you know, you see that, see him inhabit this and it's not only not embarrassing, but it's like fucking impressive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was all about it. Yeah. So throughout, we started off with Faith's story. She uh, um, is dying in her closet, hanging. Uh, then she shows up in this bar that is obviously hell. Um, then we end up uh, with Jimmy coming in again to this bar that's obviously hell. There's a weird dance sequence. I do kind of love how... Uh, how everyone just refers to how shitty he was. Mm. Like, they never straight up go through all the horrible things he does. But I loved how the, everyone just referred to it, and he doesn't really defend himself. I mean, they tell him not to, but... Um, when Alan Moore comes out on stage, and everything fades to white, 
again, I expected that to be the end of the uh, shorts, and yet there was this absolute hellish moment in the next part with uh, Jimmy being interrogated by a clown, which, which, I mean, creepy clowns. Well, yeah, and also the whole time he's got this, like, that little metal contraption keeping his mouth open, um, which just, like, adds to it. And I don't think they really do much with that. Like, they, um, they they act like he's going to, like, throw, like, a bucket of blood on him, but it's like a, you know, it's like confetti and he, like, tricks him and he's like, you know. Yeah, they Harlem Globetrotters him. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I I don't think they actually, like, try to put anything in his mouth. They they feed him something like yeah. some kind of pasty type stuff. Yeah, uh, but I, I didn't catch what it was. I think it was some kind of weird English food that <laughs> probably isn't very edible in the real world. <laughs> the uh, these five shorts, like you said, uh, several of them were on Shutter, which is a horror platform. I do enjoy how they're they're not uh, they're not bloody, they're not murdery, they're. Um, just strange and unsettling which you know is horror i still i I agree that they're horror but they're just in tone and strangeness not in uh stabby stabby yes a couple other things to throw out uh for myself um and we can talk about any other stray things about uh, the show pieces before we move on anything else you've got uh, I thought we already mentioned here, but like the creepy dancing scene, I thought worked really well. So you've got like the creepy clown. There's like these big fat burlesque dancers in there. And then there's bizarre. It's like a bizarre classical music concert. And everyone's dancing, um, like slow dancing to this music. And that was probably the most uh, successful David Lynch kind of moment I felt of like what they were riffing on, where it was like, yeah, this this tracks. This this is something that he would do. Um, so uh, I enjoyed that. Uh, I was horrified to find that English urinals are apparently just open at the bottom, <laughs> like like there's just a grating at the shoes. Uh, I don't know if anyone noticed that, but they had no. urinals where it's like, and this is supposed to be like a '70s bar, so maybe that's part of it. But the urinals, like, it wasn't even like one of those stadium things with a trough. It was like they had the top part of the urinal, but then the urinal just stopped. And so you're just like pissing at the ceramic and then that goes to a grating. And they had like a close up of the guy's shoes are like right at the grating. And I was like, that's that it must be a thing that happens in England. And I was uh, I was more horrified by that than most of the other moments than the creepy clown to be. Um And then just one stray line in this one I liked, which was uh, when Jimmy's wandering around and looking for the girl he says where's faith gone and nikki says well james that's a matter for the theologians which i felt was a very alan moore response there there is a lot of um vaudevillian wordplay um especially in that the in the show the the dream courtroom scene it's a lot of just like wordplay jokes that uh, in the backdrop of a, a terrifying dream and mm-hmm. you know demons in hell and stuff is pretty pretty cool we got anything else for show pieces anything to wrap up with 
No, thumbs up. All right. Okay, so from there, we dive into um, The Show, which, like I said, is a 2020 film, so it's a continuation of show pieces. Um, So uh, in this, the storyline that we watched in show pieces continues carries over and so all that is like canon for the film and then we follow a character played by tom burke uh who is fletcher dennis and as the narrative goes on we find out that he is a hitman for hire but like one with a moral code that kind of like dexter like he's only killing you know the the bad people or like hannibal lecter eating only or preferring to eat the rude as they say in the books and films. Um, so he has like a moral code where, you know, he's not just like killing anybody. Um, so that's, I think, Moore's little effort to make him, um, you know, a an, an okay anti-hero or whatever. And so Fletcher Dennis is that, but he's also playing the role of detective. He comes into town. He's taking different assumed identities. He's trying to find out information. And basically he is looking for Jimmy, who was supposed to have come to Northampton which is where all this takes place. Northampton is a city in England, and then Nighthampton is what they refer to this underworld, you know, hideous bar kind of thing. Um, they say that in the last short. And it's also worth noting that Northampton is where Alan Moore is from and has lived for the bulk of his life. And he's kind of like obsessed with Northampton. And I've like, there's shit that gets talked about in the show about Northampton that I know I've read Alan Moore interviews or like seen video interviews where he's talking about Northampton and like all the weird shit about it, like things about history of Northampton. Um, so yeah, so this was his like excuse to like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get talk about all this Northampton shit. <laughs> so uh, it's set in Northampton. Fletcher Dennis is coming to town looking for Jimmy. He's been hired to track him down and we eventually find out he's been hired specifically well to kill him but also to retrieve this uh what kind of looks like the cross of coronado in indiana jones and the last crusade um this like big ornate cross uh that's a piece of jewelry so he's supposed to get that back for his um you know the guy who hired him and along the way he uh we find out that faith is not actually dead she uh she went into um I, I don't know did she actually go into a coma or was she just yeah. okay so she went to a brief coma because this is all like the span of you know a couple days or a day or a day really i think after the events of uh, of jimmy disappearing it's the morning after i believe yeah so she went to a very brief coma and then survived um so was able to be revived so she kind of went through the nightmare world the the purgatory or hell world um but uh, but has lived to see the other side and so she has these visions and she's not sure if it actually happened she obviously initially thinks it's a dream but then starts to question whether or not it could have actually happened um but we do get um, more sequences with Alan Moore's Metterton. We do get more of uh, the clown briefly. We get Nikki Matchbright. We get a couple other characters that showed up in like brief roles. And then we get um, a lot of other weirdos in the real world showing up, which the real world isn't necessarily the real world based on certain things that happen. Um, so it kind of like leaves some question marks there. Uh, but yeah, let's just dig into the show wherever you want to take it. 
Does Alan Moore really like Northampton? Uh, <laughs> I think he respects it for its darkness and weirdness. I think that's probably part of it. I think uh, this movie is kind of a, you know, he he loves Northampton, but he also doesn't like several parts of it because it, it doesn't come off well. It just There's several comments by people about yeah. it. Um, well, I, I will say, I, I do know from some of the interviews I've read and stuff where it's come up, I think he said he thinks Northampton kind of gets shit on by the rest of England. I like, I don't, I don't know what it would be analogous to in America, but it's like an old city of the country of, you know, the country is at large that like, isn't taken seriously. So I don't know, maybe Detroit or Cincinnati or something like that. Like it might be that kind of thing of like, like it's a, it's a punchline to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's and, Ohio. Uh, I mean, I was going to say Youngstown. <laughs> yeah, Youngstown works. I mean, you know, do you do know that Detroit is not in Ohio, right, David? Do we need it? Do I need a map? No, no, no. I know. No, I'm saying that uh, the Ohio is the punchline. Ohio is a bigger punchline of the United States than Ohio Florida. is the Northampton of America. You say is a bigger <laughs> yes. punchline than what, David? Florida. Uh, oh, no. I, don't, I don't. I don't agree with that. Nah. I mean, you know, Just, obviously, nah. I'm from Ohio, and you've you've uh, lived here uh, yourself. But, and I'm not even saying this in terms of defense. I'm just saying, like, like of the state. But there's bigger jokes nationally, like like Arkansas. We make fun of West Virginia. We make fun of. I would say Florida. Hey, I'm from West Virginia. Right, and we make fun of it way, as a country, we make fun of it way more than we do Ohio. Ohio is, it's like, oh, you're all boring there, and I'll take that instead of, like, you're all, like, inbred Florida, I think, is probably the biggest parallel, because I think that's where all the weirdness and the crazy stories happen as well. Um, So anyway, regardless, I don't know exactly, like, what would be analogous, but I, I have read that more, like, kind of views it as... Northampton isn't taken seriously, even though, like, historically, and they talk about this somewhat in the show, historically, like, tons of stuff has, like, happened there for the country of England, and, like, things have gone through there. Um, he mentioned some of, like, the, 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 the like, uh, cute little, like, uh, tour guide girl mentioned yeah. some stuff about, like, certain wars that, like, started there, ended there, and I think... Um, Again, I've, I've read Crusades, s- she said something like yeah. yeah and and like Alan Moore has also like this is him getting into his like weirdo magic stuff of like that Northampton is almost like the like the dark center of England like it is like the I think the actual physical center of England but that it has this kind of like dark magic to it because like all this stuff has happened there that's like piled up over centuries so I think that's part of the reason that he's interested in it so when he has different characters like shit on Northampton, I don't know if that's so much him being, I agree with this or so much more him like putting it out there that that is what people from England or maybe specifically London might do. So he's trying to represent it same way. If we like, like I said, like we made a movie about Cincinnati or Detroit, it would be natural if characters are like shitting on that place. And we'd be like, or like Cleveland often has been shit on. Um, it wouldn't be unusual to hear that kind of thing. But anyway, enough about that. What else we got on the show? The detectives that uh, Fletcher 
uh, hires are yes. wonderful. Yeah. But first of all, I love that he's walking down the street and he looks over and sees a, a uh, handwritten flyer for them. And takes it, and I was like, oh, this is a nice synchronous, uh, synchronicity moment. Uh, he happens to need them and all that. And then he goes, and it's a, a house, and he's offered uh, biscuits by uh, the woman who lives there, and she leads him to an amazing tr like uh, clubhouse in the backyard. And it's yeah. two children, one of whom narrates everything. I loved everything about and there's a, this. And there's a, a child secretary as well. Yes, <laughs> Girl yes Friday. there is. Yeah. Oh, it all, and, and he takes it seriously. Like, at first he tries mm -hmm. to make a joke, but then he takes them seriously. And that's just the way it is for the rest. Even when it's two children, uh, one on top of the other, um, <laughs> wearing a trench coat to look like an adult. That's... Uh, you get a laugh at the beginning, but the scene is played straight. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's just the way things are in uh, Northampton, I guess. Two things I wondered about, Matt. So are both kids talking with an American accent? Because I thought the narrating one was. I think he's got an affectation of specifically the film noir accent. I right. Think well, so I think, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out if he was, do if I can't, if, he had both kids speaking American to play off of the American detective trope. Mm -hmm. uh, I assume they would still be British within the reality of the world and that they're like doing it playfully. Um, but I was pretty sure the narrating one was presenting it as American. And then I didn't get this bit. Uh, Fletcher's about ready to leave and he thinks, oh, they're kids, whatever the fuck. And then one of the kids says something about, like, if he plays often and, and mentions, like, what model do you use? And, like, yeah. you get a insert shot of Fletcher's hand. And, and you can tell Fletcher's like, oh, that kid figured it out. They actually must know what the fuck they're doing. And that's yeah. why he uses them. My best guess is because it's the slingshot at the uh, end maybe yeah that, maybe he picked up on something like that like i don't know i i could other than the slingshot i have no basis for what that would be that's true because yeah because i didn't i remember like not really knowing what they were saying in, in that scene and then yeah when you were just talking about it now i was like oh maybe it's the slingshot because that comes back but then because you know it's like a child it's a yeah. toy but like um and I and I assumed that it was like yeah like oh he showed that he's very observant so it's like that's why he like went back but also could be like oh we're we're kindred spirits or something and that's why yeah. he was like intrigued. Another weird bit that I couldn't figure out. I mean this is rando, but since we're on those kind of questions, um, Fletcher goes to a hospital at one point. That's where he meets Faith, but he's initially looking for Jimmy. He finds his dead body in the morgue, and he's talking to uh, like an attendant slash mortician or whatever. And he's walking with the guy and there's somebody on a gurney next to them. And as he's walking by, Fletcher just like pulls a pillow out from under her. And uh, I mean, I think she's alive, pulls a pillow out and then just like sticks it behind his back. Like, like he's hiding it. And I'm thinking like, okay, this is kind of like a Chinatown like thing. Like if anyone's seen Chinatown where like Jake, like rips the page out of the book and the like 
library or records room or whatever he's in. I thought it was like, oh, he's going to use that pillow for something. There's going to be some kind of like detective -y thing. And then uh, unless I missed it, he ends up just there like a couple scenes go by where he's with the attendant dude. And then he just hands him the pillow and walks out of the room. So did I miss what he used that for? When they get down to uh, the morgue, they walk into the morgue. He looks confused at that. The tenant uh, shows him Jimmy's dead body, or like says something about Jimmy being dead. Oh, he's and Fletcher him. goes, "What?" And he's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I oh, thought you okay. knew." He was going to kill Jimmy, right? Yeah. And then at the end, was like, "Oh, he's already dead," which is why he flippantly uh, tosses yeah. the uh, pillow. Okay, there we go. All right. Um, Maybe David's right that everything in an Alan Moore written thing <laughs> has a purpose. Yeah. I did feel... Have y'all read um, or seen the not-great-TV show, but okay TV show, Dirk Gently? Uh, no. Um, Douglas Adams? Never, yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, uh, I've never... I've never seen the show. I can't remember if I read one of the books, um, but if I have, I don't... It didn't stick with me. Oh, they're both really funny. But it's Dirk Gently's holistic uh, detective yeah. agency, and he kind of just trusts in things uh, happening for him. Um, the tiniest, smallest things pay off later. Um, like things that are completely inconsequential turn out not to be. Um, and this felt like a serious Dirk Gently. I apparently Just, read the second one, The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. I don't know if somebody gave it to me or recommended it, but I apparently have not read the first. Oh, the first one's better. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, that was the feeling I got from uh, Fletcher being into Zen at the end using something ridiculous like a uh, uh, slingshot, which took me completely by surprise. Um, him finding, uh, well... Him talking to Faith at the beginning makes sense, but then um, t her coming with him, uh, the way all of that works out with them talking and how she uh, ingratiates herself. Him talking to the man at the bar, finding out that man's mom is obsessed with that old um, uh, comedy group, which helps lead them down a path. Like, all of that. Uh, felt more absurd than a regular detective story. It mm -hmm. felt, yeah, it felt kind of Dirk Gently esque, uh, but again, without necessarily the amount of comedy. Yeah. Uh, and it works well. It works really well. Uh, and there's all the very, very strange characters where you don't, like, the woman who's all in black and white, you don't get a ton of uh, backstory on her. But what you do get is, like, I love the two minutes that you have talking to her. Yeah. You, um, I felt like that was a good economy of uh, storytelling there. Well, where... her, and then there's, like, kind of, I don't know, she's like a drug lord, the, the black, younger black lady. Like, like she also John has... the Conqueror is what, what she's called. What's her name? It's like, John the Conqueror or something? Like, uh, that might be right. Um... um... Yeah, well, just John Conqueror. Oh, John uh, Conqueror. Okay. Yeah. Which is, um, I'm sure, a reference to something. Yeah, probably. Like um, John as in, like, a prostitute and she conquers. I don't know. Could be. Okay. <laughs> well, well, John or, isn't a prostitute. 
Well, yeah, like yeah, but, in but, reference to uh, John being like, yeah. Uh, um, but she's a pimp, if anything, I would think. Right. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, she gets like limited screen time, but she also like is used well, I felt, and like just has some solid presence. So yeah, when people pop up, I feel like they're utilized well in the plot, even if you don't totally know where anything's going or whatever, or if they're just kind of really offbeat, but, um, more, you know, because he's been writing for, you know, I don't know, 45 years or something and just like knows how to craft dialogue and character, um, makes them pretty interesting and memorable. Uh, John the Conqueror is both a plant and um, it is a folk hero from African-American folklore. And yeah. David did not Google that. He merely just concentrated really hard and used his <laughs> encyclopedic mind and, and pulled that out. Uh, he has a memory warehouse up there. And uh, Honestly, what's the difference between a memory warehouse and Google? I... <laughs> Uh, about yeah. 400 billion dollars <laughs> um i yeah the woman in black and white i also liked her um her her line about when uh describing the gold cross that jimmy was wearing at the beginning of the night and then he didn't have it at the end she had two just great lines where um uh, Fletcher asks her about uh, whether it had a ruby, and she's like, or a garnet? It was dark. How, how am I supposed to tell? I loved that. And then afterwards, when uh, after Jimmy's fallen down the stairs and is dead, and Fletcher's like, well, did he still have the necklace on? And her response was, I don't know. He, you know, I wasn't talking to him, and he wasn't trying to touch me at that point, so I wasn't paying attention to him. Well, John Conker also has the line of like, if he he asked her the same question, and if he did, uh, I'd have it right now or something like that, and, and we'd be negotiating. Yeah. Um, that so, Alan Moore sure can write. <laughs> well, so uh, so yeah, I mean, one thing about this one is it like it definitely has those Lynch touches. It goes into some dream worlds at points. Um, and it has, even within reality, some bizarre things like the, you know, the, the kids detective and everything. But it definitely has a more straightforward narrative and presentation. And it follows really like, as David's saying, like Dirk Gently, um, but really just sort of like the tropes of a standard detective story. So I feel that this one is more accessible to, even though like, even though a lot of people, if you watch this with just like casual movie fans, they might be like, this movie's weird. But they would at least understand, oh, he's a detective, and he's trying to find this out, yeah. and he's asking this person, he's asking this person. Whereas if you sat someone down with show pieces, they're like, uh, wh what? <laughs> um, so I, I think it, the show benefits from at least starting from a place of like having tropes that we recognize and then fucking with those tropes and doing weird shit with those tropes. Um, so I think that helps it. Um a couple of just Alan Moore things I'll throw out there that I noticed, and if you have any others, David or Eric, uh, you can say them as well. So being the big fan of Moore that I was, or am, that I was just kind of looking for anything of like, or just naturally as it came, like, is there anything that like pops out of like, oh, this is a very Alan Moore style thing. So uh, one thing is it starts in space and we zoom in past the moon into earth we're like doing like a google view satellite view thing and we like zoom all the way down 
And so that zoom in or zoom out is something that he's done at least twice and probably more times because he does it in the beginnings, particularly in beginnings. He does it in Watchmen um, with the zoom in and out like the of the uh, smiley face button. And he does it uh, in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen book two with um, Mar- like when they're on Mars, they're going into Mars. Um, and so it's something he's done at least a couple times. I think he's done it probably more times. But he also zooms in on a puddle. So we start in space mm-hmm. and we go down into this puddle. So I think part of the idea is like, um, you know, like being in the heavens, you know, and, and then we're down in like down in the dirt with like Northampton being, you know, shitty. Um, but uh, that puddle imagery also sure as fuck reminded me of the killing joke, which <laughs> opens with a puddle. That's like the very first shot is like a puddle with rain falling before we go into stuff with the Joker. So uh, so that's one thing. I've got another one. But uh, anything on that, David? It looks like you're oh, not on that. But... OK. He does um, say later on that, like when he comments when he's in the dream world that like he says like a puddle is more real than this place or something like that. Oh, okay. I remember that. So I'm, yeah. And I think there's some quote from literature or maybe it's a more modern thing about something about like being in the gutter, but staring up in the stars or something. I don't know what that comes from. Hmm. Um, and so maybe more is kind of playing off of that or maybe he's reversing it. You're coming from the stars <laughs> and going down into the gutter uh, it's something about like we may be in the gutter, but our eyes are fixed to the stars or I don't know. I have to look it up. Um, but uh, the other thing is David had mentioned that Alan Moore puts a lot of detail when he writes comics, like for the artists specifies how it's going to look, what he wants done. Um, and if you ever read any of his scripts, it's actually interesting too. like, while wow, he's very detail oriented Um, he isn't like a tyrant on it. He will say like, oh, you know, these are suggestions. If you can think of a better approach for like this angle or whatever, it's like, oh, do your thing. Because he doesn't want to be like, it must be this angle with these characters. Um, But he does get very detailed in what he wants, like on the screen or in the panel that he thinks is going to work. And so something he does a lot is have messages on like, billboards trash uh like on the ground newspapers magazines uh advertisements i mean uh promethea had it regularly tom strong had it um i think v for vendetta had it in the background like you know anarchist messages and state you know propaganda messages and shit and then the biggest one probably is watch uh well league did it at times for like a antiquated thing but then watchmen you know, very famously did it where you would have uh, the new frontiersman was the right wing magazine and you would see it throughout different issues. And you had uh, whatever the like liberal magazine was that Vite was in. I can't remember. You see that and you see the uh, perfume pop up the ads for the perfume and you have like Gunga Diner. You see ads for that. So it's like all these elements that are like part of his fictional world that he will throw in in the background one to make it more real i think and two to just kind of like get certain ideas and themes and messages across so he does that here and i'm sure there's a bunch of shit i missed but i did notice there's just some kind of rando weird messages and signs that maybe are there for a grander significance um but uh the ones i saw um so when the guy when fletcher goes to stay 
at that house, there's like a for rent sign and the sign says Usher and Amityville real estate. Um, or it might not have been in real estate because it was really lo- little. I couldn't say what it says, but you know, obviously that is a reference to House of Usher and uh, Amityville, Amityville Horror. Um, there's also like flyers advertising racist pin- uh, paintball. Um, it just says like racist paintball and then bring the family. Um, so I, I don't know. That. Yeah, that. it's when it's when Fletcher is like getting the ad for the detective. So I don't know if, if that's more like commenting on like some racism in England. Um, so there was that one. Uh, there's also like a lost dog poster. It was like if found contact, but it's a picture of like a vicious looking baboon. And you see that one a couple times. So I think it's just like part of more trying to make this seem like an off kilter, bizarre place and bizarre world. I think there's more, um, but those are some of the ones I noticed. There were a couple for some kind of uh, social network. And I remember noticing yeah. those and thinking, wow, those are really existentialist, like uh, depressing uh, ads. Like that looked pretty. So again, just a, probably him commenting. Yeah, there was some other kind of like uh, in insomnior or something that was like some sort of performance art or something. You see posters for it a handful of times. It almost looked like Alan Moore. It was like some creepy dude. It wasn't a picture of him, but it was like a creepy looking dude with a beard that um, was there in the background. But yeah, David, did you have some like Alan Moore isms? Uh, yeah, the superhero. Yes, yeah. I I want to know what the fuck he was trying to do with yeah. that character, other than just maybe say, "Oh, superheroes don't really do anything." Well, I mean, he is the first. He or hackers are the real superheroes. <laughs> Hack the world! Hack the world! Um, I mean, Alan Moore started the whole deconstructing superheroes thing. Uh, in what in... book, David? Miracle Man, which I have tattooed on my arm right here. It's true, he does. Uh, God, I love that book. But yes, he started the um, deconstruction of superheroes with Mir- Miracle Man, then called Marvel Man in Warrior Magazine. Um, publisher Des Skin. Uh, let's not go into that. We'll be here for another hour. Anyhow. Uh, and then Watchmen and um, more of the fantastical, straightforward stuff with Promethea. Um, but that still broke down um, magic and uh, the Wonder Woman archetype. Um, and yeah, in this, you get, um, I mean, again, weird uh, synchronicity moment when... Synchronous moment? When uh, Fletcher goes into the library straight away and asks the librarian a couple of questions and the librarian ends up hacking for him to help him out. And then it diverts to the librarian going home. He's got all of these newspaper clippings about a uh, superhero who has long since either retired or died. And then he sits at his computer and puts on his mask and starts looking for uh, Fletcher, like who has a fake name at that point. Um, who and he starts trying. And throughout the movie, you go back to him, just hacking, just 
tracking what's going on. And at, it, the movie ends with him. It ends with him doing nothing. Well, almost. There's one scene after. Like, uh... There's the uh, climax of the movie followed by the former superhero sitting with his absurd mask deleting the footage of what happened from the CCTV and then you've got the final like minute of movie so it's gotta mean more than just superheroes are dumb I, I thought it was just like but maybe it's just that well he, he has grown to hate them yeah. Um, but uh, I thought it was possibly just a commentary on like if superheroes existed in the real world, they likely, you know, like like this guy was not a superhero in the sense he didn't have powers. He was just like a crime fighter. But even then, he was basically just a guy who liked to play dress up and kind of pretend that he was doing something. So I think that was my best guess is it's more just once again venting. It, it was it was basically an, an Alan Moore Facebook rant via this character of like I fucking hate superheroes they're awful um, but uh, yeah I, I don't know like I because I, I, I expected that guy to show up at the end and do something I didn't expect him to save the day necessarily just knowing more but I thought oh well, maybe he gets there and he like helps and then he gets killed or something like that like like he has a tragic end but he still is like positive or maybe he has a tragedy like like a tragic story where alan moore humanizes him but no he doesn't really do anything other than yeah he like deletes some evidence that would help fletcher avoid detection so he sort of just plays a batgirl role if anything or an oracle role fletcher even draws out the uh lightning bolt symbol and shows it to faith asking her do you know what this symbol is uh like as though it's going to help she does it subject dropped for the rest of the movie. Yeah. <sighs> Damn you, Alan Moore. <laughs> All right. Any, uh, any, I've got a couple lines here. So any good dialogue from this one we want to highlight? Um, I was trying to find the line, but I can't, I can't quite okay. remember what it has to do with the, the ads you were talking about. And it's in, in, in the, in showpieces part four, when they're, talking the you know devil and god thing and then at one point nick says um you know will it end with a bang or a whimper yeah and alan moore responds probably with an ad for something and i can't remember what the line but it was a pretty good line yeah <laughs> i it why i it was a good setup i actually missed it i think because he refers to maybe something specifically english Mm -hmm. And so I think, or, or his accent was kind of like hard to decipher and there was no yeah. subtitles. So I wasn't entirely sure what he said in that moment, but I mean, you could tell it was like a solid quip. Um, I think my favorite line, my favorite interaction in the show was, um, Faith and, uh, Fletcher talking and, uh, she's realized that he is, not a private detective and starts going off about that uh you know being like you're not a private detective uh like you told me you're not uh jimmy's friend like you told uh the hospital you're not uh this other thing and he is and one he lists off he lists off by accident something she hadn't mentioned 
She's like, I didn't even like who 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 did you lie to with that one? Yeah. And as she's trying to leave, she goes, I want the truth from you, um, and says whatever fake Steve, name. Steven. Steve. Steve. Yeah. And she's like, I want the truth from you, Steven, uh, if that is your real name. And he goes, my real name's Fletcher Dennis. Which just pisses her off more. She, she responds with, I was joking. And walks out for a minute. And I, I loved that moment. It felt semi-believable in the uh, circumstance. And it was just so funny. <laughs> so the uh, the two bits that I liked dialogue-wise, I mean, there's good dialogue, I think, particularly in the show. It stands out more. I think the show is trying to be funnier and more clever in the dialogue. Not that there isn't in the, in show pieces, but I think it's, it's trying to pop and be a little lighter than uh, show pieces was. Um, so Fletcher Dennis ends up in the, you know, Nighthampton, the, the nightmare world, and he's talking to Alan Moore, uh, Alan Moore's character, who in the last one in, in show pieces was presented in, as this godly-like figure, gold face, big white hair, big white beard. And so he has changed his appearance, and now he looks like Mac Tonight from McDonald's. He's got this, like, he's his beard is down into this, like, crazy, you know, devil point. And then he has his hair all done up in, like, uh, an upside-down devil point that's pointing, you know, the other way. And so he has this, like, moon-like shape to his face, like a crescent moon. Um, and then he still has, like, weird gold paint and, like, eyeliner on silver. and shit. What's that? It's more silver to match the hair. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it looks great. It's fantastic, <laughs> like, crazy makeup. And, like, it. in the context of this, Moore's character is, uh, is a performer. He was a comedian. But now he's, like, overseeing this nightmare world and shit. And he's got this crazy, you know, like, uh, outfit on with, like, uh, a lot of, like, you know, jewels and shit on it. Um, sparkles and things. Anyway, His eye makeup is on point, by the way. <laughs> you heard it here first. David is very attracted to Alan Moore. <laughs> um, I'm a sapiosexual. <laughs> All right. So anyway, so Fletcher Dennis asks him, "How are you doing this?" And Alan Moore's character like lists like all this stuff that's kind of like stage theatrics. Like he does it in a flippant way. And then he ends with saying, smoke and mirrors. And Fletcher Dennis says, but you're dead. And he says, well, yes, that's where we got the smoke. Or, well, you died in a fire. Sorry, you died in a fire. Well, yes, that's where we got the smoke. Um, so I liked that. But then my favorite part of any of these episodes or any of this work is Alan Moore gives himself a speech. And it's the kind of speech that he often would give characters in his comics that's like really well written and like chilling in a way and then he performed the fuck out of it so that made it even better <laughs> but so in the same section when he's talking to Fletcher Dennis um like sometime after that so Dennis is trying to get kind of a sense of this and he's like saying he had already found out that Moore's character was involved in like magic like in the Alistair Crowley sense and like interested in drugs and things like that so he's kind of putting together that like he conjured this or something. And so he asks him that. And Moore's response is, uh, very, and he does it very wryly. Like he's doing it just kind of playfully. And then like, as the speech goes on, it turns from like playful to like sinister. 
And so he says, every last bit done with sorcery, or was that poetry? They're two old friends of mine, and with advancing years I have increasing difficulty telling them apart. But rather highly strung, and nobody believes in either of them. Actually, that suits my purposes. I mean, I don't suppose the Japanese believed in A-bombs, did they? <laughs> and, like, yeah. that line was killer and also like fuck that's true like, like at the time like yeah. people weren't you know like people of a regular country not just japan but other countries weren't expecting that to happen yeah. um so i really liked that uh that bit of alan moore dialogue i think when he's first introduced in the show he's like singing on the lawn and yeah he's even more looks like mac tonight yeah <laughs> it's like <laughs> It's like, was that just a straight-up reference by him? Also, uh, we referenced Mac tonight when we did the Nightbreed episode because there is another <laughs> character, that, and David was on that. So it's a running theme. When David is on the show, Mac tonight may make an appearance. <laughs> I'm just waiting until we uh, are able to organically bring up uh, some of the Burger King uh, mascots over the years. <laughs> Oh, right. One, another uh, fun moment I enjoyed is in the climax, um, or right around there, uh, he, um, Fletcher is confronted with his whole code. Yeah, in the climax, um, what's his name? The, uh, uh, the gangster. Um, uh, Patsy Bleeker. Yes. Bleaker has uh, Faith. Uh, he's got a gun to Faith's head. He's like, you've got a code. Um, and uh, you won't let me kill this innocent person. And Fletcher's uh, like, eh, go ahead, kill her. I don't know her. You know, that very basic gambit that always happens at the end of movies. And Bleaker uh, yells at him, you've got a code, right? And... He He's like, it's like, you've got a code, right, uh, about this and morality and your whole Zen thing. And he just kind of goes, he's lying, obviously, but he goes, yeah, that's less a hard, fast code and more just a suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I very much enjoyed that. I thought it was okay, but I thought it was a little too close to Alan Moore just ripping off the moment from Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> Oh, I forgot about that. Because I almost wondered if he was going to say, like, more of guidelines. And I was like, are you just going to straight up reference it? And then he says a different word. And I was like, okay, he didn't reference it, but you kind of stole it. <laughs> so, uh, Hey, artist steal. Um, but then, was there any groundwork laying uh, other than perhaps uh, the um, the detective children? Was there any groundwork lane for the uh, slingshot that Fletcher uses to kill yes. two assassins and the bad guy? You uh, you actually are leading right into where I wanted to go with this, David. Thank you. Um, so, uh, well, there is a line somewhere in the movie. I didn't copy it because I didn't think about its significance at the time. But there's something where they, they reference something. Maybe it's like two birds with one stone or some kind of phrase with a stone. And she says something of like, Oh, he uses stones to, to kill things or something these days, mm -hmm. something oh, like yeah. that. And so that, that comes back around. 
But um, okay, so I have uh, I have two quick things that were like production related, and the second one will address what you're saying. So the first was. Uh, apparently Moore was quoted in an article saying with the show I wanted to apply the storytelling ability accumulated during the rest of my varied career to the medium of film so I just thought that was interesting that like he saw it as bringing what he'd done in comics to film which I think we addressed somewhat here and then the other thing was I would not have known this um, and obviously none of neither of you knew it um, I randomly saw it when I was looking up some stuff on the show. I saw somebody reference something, and so I started digging into it. And then it's sort of like buried in one moment in Wikipedia, but I could have easily read over it otherwise. Um, so in the show, the show, this is uh, quoting a thing, the show features a protagonist named Fletcher Dennis, who wears the iconic red and black striped jumper and wields a slingshot yeah. as a weapon, implying that he's a grown-up Dennis who became a morally scrupulous scrupulous hitman. Now, to be clear, that is not the American Dennis the Menace. No. There are actually two Dennis, so you know of them, Eric, the British? No, but I think when I did, I did read that line in Wikipedia when they mentioned the sweater, okay. and I was like, huh? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so there is a British Dennis the Menace that if you look into it, and I, I vaguely knew about this because I read all of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Alan Moore brought in like every character of fiction that he could. Um, and I'm pretty sure Dennis, that Dennis the Menace gets referenced or something somewhere in there. But no, if you look into it, Dennis the Menace, the American version, debuted on the exact same fucking day as a Dennis the Menace British version, completely unrelated, just coincidental name. But they came out on the same day in the 50s. And uh, so they both basically, like, have the rights to the character. um, (laughs) And they are both, like, rambunctious, troublemaking children. And they use, like, I mean, I think the American might use a slingshot sometimes, but the British one, it was, like, specifically attached to him. And he also had a dog named Nasher. And so the from what what they do know is to make it work, the American version, and these are both comic strips, the American version of Dennis the Menace, if it shows up in England to not have it be confusing, they just call that Dennis. And the British version, if there's comics over here, they call that Dennis and Nasher. Um, so they just drop the menace part so that there's no confusion. But uh, Fletcher Dennis's character is wears this red and black striped shirt, which if you look up the Dennis character, that's what he wears, the British version. He also has kind of like this thick mop of hair, almost sort of like a Calvin and Hobbes, like where Calvin has the big spikes. He's got like moppy hair. And this guy has like a big bushy kind of haircut that a few people comment on. Um, And so the idea is that this is basically Alan Moore taking this like child, you know, rambunctious kid that uh, from British comics. And then he grew up to be a scrupulous hitman. And so it's once again the kind of stuff that he would do in comics, like in League, he would take characters, uh, he took like James Bond, and he couldn't legally call him James Bond, but everything about it was clearly pointing to that this is James Bond. He would mess with James Bond, and there's another book in League where Harry Potter is the fucking Antichrist. He can't say the name Harry Potter, but everything about it points to that this is Harry Potter. So this is him doing that again it's going to be more like noticeable to british audiences and they'll pick up on it but american audiences aren't going to like no they're just like oh that's just some dude and he just wears that shirt a lot i guess yeah i i'm looking at a picture of the british dennis and it's 
Yeah. <laughs> it's dead, yeah, dead there's on. No, yeah, yeah, there's no question. God yeah. damn it, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> More, <laughs> you've done it again! <laughs> His best friend's a talking pie. I and, and when I when I was watching it and, and you know noticed the sweater it's very obviously stands out so it's like well it's got to mean something I I thought Freddy Krueger yeah Krueger wears had, green though right and so, but like and I, I, and I, I didn't immediately it. say it and then like he has a scene with Alan Moore's character and Alan Moore says something like I live in people's dreams or something like that and I was like is he referencing Freddy Krueger yeah. but nothing else really pointed to it um but man that's yeah. It's a deep cut for the yeah. Americans, but for the British, it's probably uh, a lot more obvious because, yeah, it would be similar to, I mean, uh, our Dennis the Menace has a specific look, you know, the blonde hair and the, like, you know, Chucky jumpsuit. Um, and then uh, also They're Calvin. overalls. <laughs> but he looks like a creepy little fucking Chucky doll. Yeah. Because he's a child wearing overalls. And they should stop that, is what I'm saying to me. It's unsettling. Um, but, uh, yeah, or or Calvin. I mean, Calvin had, uh, Calvin would wear, like, what? It was, like, a red shirt. With, with black something. stripes. But but they were, like, yeah. thin Tiny black stripes. stripes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, okay. So those are some, uh, some production things going on in the back end of the show here. Um, you know, we haven't revealed, like, Every beat that happens in this, we've talked, you know, certain plot elements, we've talked around certain things and, you know, talked character and weirdness and whatever. So if you haven't watched these, uh, I think there's still a lot that you will find that's like interesting and funny and and kind of out there and worth checking out. Um, So anything on the show before we wrap up? Yeah, we didn't talk much about uh, Faith and her role uh, as... um which she calls out that she does um, most of the detecting. Uh, but she's really good in this. I really enjoy this uh, uh, the, like this performance, uh, both in um, show pieces and in this. Um, this and she plays uh, really well off of, um, off of Fletcher Dennis's more stoic uh, uh, presentation. Mm-hmm. Like she gives their scenes a lot more, um, like she gives them emotion and uh, more interpersonal action, because um, he's kind of more uh, reserved and just trying to, like he's not completely reserved, but he's trying to find this information out. She's interacting with him really, really well. Yes, yeah, she was good, and yeah, she definitely has more to do in this one um, than in the other. Also, where did her boyfriend go? In between the two, I mean, I understand he might be freaked out by. Um, yeah, they don't. They don't mention her parents. Her parents seem to disown her in yeah. some fashion, and then maybe, maybe, maybe the guy just disappeared or was well. I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, she has to explain that the cops get involved because the actual paramedics came and rescued her, and then like the cops are seemingly pissed because. Like they had to like, the paramedics had to rescue when this was like all a sex game. So it's it's possible that the guy just was like trying to avoid uh, dealing with it. But also from show pieces, do we even know that it's her boyfriend? It seemed like my like with my assumption would have been that this was like a more casual like 
Like, this is a dude I know, and we're going to do this tonight. It's definitely possible that it wasn't like a, you know. The words boyfriend are never used. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, still, in theory, you would think he might, like, wonder, is she dead? But, um, but yeah, I don't know. Somehow, the paramedics got called, though, so I'm guessing that he would have had to have done that because she was tied up. I think so. He did seem definitely concerned that (laughs) he wasn't going to make it on time and probably did, you know, since he couldn't get her on the phone, was like, well, I got to, like, do something. Would you recommend show pieces and the show? I'm more likely to recommend the show because you're right, it is more accessible, but it's hard to know how much more you get by watching the show pieces first. Um, you definitely don't have to like think about the world you're getting into as much. Yeah. But you're right. I, I, I'm curious as to what I would have thought of it had I not watched show pieces first. I think, yeah, there's, there would have been a level of enjoyment cause it is still a pretty coherent plot you're following. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely recommend them. Um, but just, you know, knowing that like the show pieces are a little, little more out there. Um, I think, I mean, even the first one, like if you just say, watch, watch number one and that can stand alone. Cause it is pretty like cool in its own way mm-hmm. without, you know, expanding into the rest of the, the universe. Um, so what you're saying is you're going to sit down with your dad and watch show pieces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll add order. Uh, we're going to go four, two, one, three, five. <laughs> Eric, what is this? <laughs> I like that clown, though. <laughs> so this is tagging back over to something earlier. If that is... If Fletcher Dennis is British Dennis the Menace, and that's the kind of deep cut he would do in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is this in the same cinematic universe as the Sean Connery League of Extraordinary Gentlemen my mind is blown Um, I've told this story uh, when we did Sir Billy but uh, you're reminding me of it by mentioning Sean Connery and so I'm going to tell it again um, and you may not have heard this before, David, so I think you will appreciate it. Now, I'll be doing a Sean Connery impression for, for this. Um, but uh, no, so this was in an old Entertainment Weekly. Uh, so Eric, was, Eric and I were on an episode of for Sir Billy, which is a terrible Scottish animated <laughs> film <laughs> that uh, was Sean Connery's final film. It's, it's horrible. Um, but uh, everyone thinks it's League, but it's not. He, he did this voiceover thing some years later. But uh, I remember I used to have Entertainment Weekly uh, years back and League was coming out and I read like an article on it and they quoted Sean Connery in it saying, um, I got offered the Lord of the Rings and I turned it down because I didn't understand it. I got offered the Matrix twice and I turned it down because I didn't understand it. I don't understand this movie, but I'll be goddamned if I'm going to turn it down. <laughs> and that is the reason that he starred in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I will say, even though that's an insane rationale for why he was picking things, um, like, League should have been good. The books are great, and 
Quartermain was written to be Sean Connery. Like they drew him to be Sean Connery and yeah. he would be a great Quartermain. They just needed like, a, and I don't even think League, like people act like League's like one of the worst movies ever, worst comic book movies. Like I think it's just like a disappointment and just like yeah. blandly bad. Like it's not laughably bad. Um, it just should have been really good and it's just not. Um, but all right. So, all right. Uh, um, what I recommend though, yeah. Uh, as I said at the top, I enjoyed show pieces uh, more than the show. I would, I mean, I've got friends that we've sat around and watched like uh, Lynch short films. So, to them, I would highly recommend. Uh, I would highly recommend um, show pieces. Uh, I'm going to say 8 out of 10 for show pieces, 6 out of 10 for the show. Mm, all, right. all right. Maybe 5. <laughs> that's, but that's, eight. that's, I think, I think 5 is pretty, that's pretty good. Okay. That's okay. A, that's six, a failing grade. <laughs> 6 out of 10 uh, for uh, the show, but um, show pieces uh, engaged me more. Okay. Um... So for myself, I enjoy both of them. I'm not 100% on board with both of them. Like, uh, I feel like Showpieces doesn't, you know, like in that David Lynch way, it's like, for me, not totally like satisfying as a narrative, even if I like a lot of parts of it. And then the show, uh, I think I like the detective structure. I like the weirdness of going in that world. I will say like, I think maybe the last 20 minutes just needed to be stronger. There just needed to be more to happen, more of a like, not that what where it went was like bad, but I just think it like more things needed to be like kind of coming together or coming to a head or to feel like we were like building to something and more does really great endings in a lot of his comics where it builds to something great. So I was thinking like, oh, okay, well, maybe, you know, like the superhero dude, maybe that's going to play a factor. And then it didn't. Um, so I thought the ending was a little weak, especially compared to his best stuff. Um, but that said, I think they're both really interesting. Um, I'm glad that he's out there working in film now or making an attempt at it, uh, since he has retired from comics. Um, you know, I will definitely keep tabs on what Alan Moore has going on. So I would recommend it for any Alan Moore fans, um, David Lynch fans, fans of weird cinema, horror, that kind of stuff. Um, these are not casual watches, you know, so Eric's dad will not be watching it with Eric. Uh, I will not be watching these with my mom. Um, you know, not, not that kind of thing, but yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is more like weirdo hardcore film fan stuff. Um, but before we move on to the last bit here, I was going to throw out like, um, just some Alan Moore stuff in case you aren't super familiar um, and I was going to ask anyone's recommendations of like what they particularly like. We don't have to go on, on and on, but, um, just some high level points and then a couple like, uh, smaller ones that I enjoy. So whatever happened to man of tomorrow is a fantastic Superman story. And then there's for the man who has everything, which is like collected in some works. You can't really get it as a standalone. I don't think. Um, but those are two really solid Superman stories. He had, a Famous run on Swamp Thing, Watchmen, of course, Miracle Man, Tom Strong uh, is uh, so Miracle Man kind of revitalized or 
deconstructed superheroes, as David mentioned. Tom Strong is sort of uh, doing this like uh, Doc Savage kind of pulpy hero thing. V for Vendetta is obviously famous. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Lots of books in that series. They bring together like all of fiction. Batman the Killing Joke is very famous. Um, and then some lesser, oh, well, From Hell is big, obviously. And then some lesser known ones. Alan Moore, some of his early stuff he did called Future Shocks. And they were in 2000 AD where they're kind of like little Twilight Zone stories uh, in comics form. And those have been collected. And I'm a big fan of those. In Pictopia is sort of like an Alan Moore story set in Toontown, like a Roger Rabbit type world almost. Huh. Uh, yeah, it's like they look it up on Amazon, David, because they released it as its own thing. But before it used to only be like part of a couple collections. Uh, in Pictopia, it's not like cartoon cartoons. It's like comic strip cartoons type world. Um, and it has like a detective narrative to it. He did a series called Top Ten that's set where, like, everyone has superpowers, and it's like a cop procedural. Cinema Purgatorio is one of the last things he did, um, and that's really interesting, and it's like a part of an anthology with a bunch of other stuff. Uh, he did Crossed Plus 100, which is the Crossed series, but it's set... Uh, have you read it, David? Yeah, I... Okay. All right. I enjoyed it. Uh, he did, so it's, uh, it's set like a hundred years later in the crossed universe. And, um, so those are some of like the, the lesser known works, but you know, for myself, Watchmen is King, obviously. Uh, and I greatly enjoy Swamp Thing and Miracle Man League and Tom Strong are big. Um, so basically everything I listed on here are things that I like. But those would be some of the big contenders for me. So anything to throw out there for Alan Moore for either of you? Uh, obviously, I love um, Miracle Man. I love it enough that I got it tattooed on myself. And you have a bike of it. Yes, I also uh, custom painted a uh, bicycle. Um, of, of And I bought that... Uh, artist edition um, with a bunch of uh, really cool art from it and if I had $2,700 I would buy those blue lines for uh, that are on eBay from uh, volume 3 but I don't I don't have that money very salty about it um, but go yeah, to David's me... GoFundMe so that he can get <laughs> his Miracle Man blue lines uh, but yeah, okay. I mean, the big ones, obviously. Like, I I love Mir I love Miracle Man. Um, Prometheus, great. League is great. Um, honestly, like, yeah, uh, From Hell is a long read, but it's uh, it's really good, and the movie's horrible. And then, um, and this is just not even a humble brag. This is just a brag. Uh, big numbers, unfinished. Two issues came out out of twelve. It's uh, Bill Sinkavitz, and I've got I, I, I've got one of them signed by Bill Sinkavitz. So you know, I'm a better Alan Moore fan than you, <laughs> or at least a better Bill Sinkavitz fan. David's a pretty big deal. Uh, I don't know if also, you're a bigger Alan Moore fan. You didn't know about Inpictopia or these movies, so you just went to a fucking comic convention and said, ah, here, sign this, please. <laughs> oh, 
also, that's not actually my copy of Big Numbers. That's my brother's. I'm a, I'm a fraud. He's a, he's a fraud. Eric? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to add, right. other than what you guys named. Um, I, I do have, a, like, a collection of one-offs they did, like, Best of Ellen Moore thing that they Oh, the DC that, but... one? Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, lots yeah. of good stuff in yeah, that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't read um, Tom Strong or um, From Hell or... Uh, top 10 is really good. But yeah, I haven't read that one either. But Top 10, uh, yeah, there's Top 10, Top 10 49ers, and then Smacks are all within the same world, and they're all like various levels of fun. Tom Strong I'd highly recommend. It's it's a very fun book. Yeah. Um, have you read Swamp Thing? Because you definitely should Yes, read the Havertz, yeah, I do own Swamp Thing, yeah. Can I give anti-recommendations? <laughs> I suppose... Uh, I didn't hear yeah. anyone mention the Lost Girls. I've known of that. <laughs> yeah. Is that actually not good? I've I've read it twice. Once because I had to, you know, read it, and then the second time I went through all of Moore's works. Uh, like right before he retired, like he had announced that League was going to close him out, and I had like I basically like I got through everything like with a week to spare when like the last issue of League <laughs> dropped, and so I like I did it. I did it, but. So I reread Lost Girls, um, and uh, I mean, I think it's an interesting work, but I don't own it because it's just like I don't know. Do I do I need to read this multiple times? Not really. I appreciate that you did that. That's amazing. Um, at the shop, uh, um, at the shop, I remember Tom ordered a couple copies. We opened one, um, and just opened it to a random page. And I was like, nope. No. And I read it eventually because I had to read everything. Yeah. Yeah. I felt that wasn't a rule. I just felt like I had to. And I did not like it. It's creepy. Uh, Neonomicon. I did not like it. It's creepy. Uh, <laughs> it is Lovecraft, though, so it should be creepy. <laughs> it's not fun Lovecraft creepy. And then I think part of my thing with uh, Crossed is just um, I had bought that first run of Crossed and got tired of the premise okay. before uh, more got to it. So when I read it, I came. Um, it might be good. It might be a good twist. But I came. I will admit that I came at Crossed with the uh, mindset of uh, another Crossed book. Well, did you not? finish it then no i read it and i was okay. still like eh. well it, it so, just left me cold well so i'll just briefly say the reason i like crossed plus 100 was i'd never read any crossed i hadn't even heard of it to be honest or maybe i'd passingly seen it but I'd, I'd never read anything um so i don't think i even knew the premise for crossed um but i read anything more was doing and Outside of League, a lot of the stuff he'd been doing for maybe the last, like, 10 years before retirement, I felt was, like, eh, not terrible, but, like, we weren't getting, like, V for Vendettas. We were getting, like, some stuff that's, like, all right, well, this is okay, or, you know, whatever. Um, And then then Cross came out, and I was, like, okay, I can get behind this. Like, it was, again, not, like, to his best stuff, but for me, it was a step up where, like, I liked that. I got the premise, you know, I was like, all right. So they, they just like unleashed, you know, inhibitions or whatever. 
but then he put it in this future world and so he played around with language in it and he played around with what happens to the world in a hundred years but my favorite aspect of it and i'll say this without ruining the plot i've said this to david before i think one thing i think that Moore does really well is he will say he will ask questions and that becomes the central idea of a work it won't just be like a lot of writers or artists or whoever or novelists will be like, oh, I want to talk about these kind of ideas. And it might be good, might be bad. But like what I think Moore does is he'll like kind of define, here's a que- central question that everything's going to revolve around. So like Watchmen would be like, what if superheroes were in the real world? And he's actually said that that's like kind of the central concept that he built everything around. And other ones have done similar things. But with Crossed, He's entering into this world where there's a virus that spreads that people just like they're they become pure id and they're just like violent and you know they're just like sexually abusing people and murdering people and and, and that's part of the crossed world they're like they're like violent zombies um and so it if you get like the blood on a crossed person's blood on you you become a crossed right you get you get infected so What's really interesting about that book is I feel the central question is he came from the point of view is like, all right, here's this world. Here's what happens. What happens in this world if someone's already like that? What do they do? And that's what the kind of central mystery of Cross Plus 100 is, is he essentially takes a sociopathic character who already has those thoughts and feelings regularly and so now the world has just become a completely different landscape. What does that person do? And that to me was like very vintage classic Alan Moore. And that's why I got into this. I, I, I hadn't burned myself out like you're saying to be because I had never read any. But that entry into the story, I was like, oh, that's fucking interesting. And so that plus the future elements like pulled me along. So that's why I dug that one. I do want to respond to one tiny thing you said. Yeah. I'll cut it, but go ahead. <laughs> violent, violent zombies, as opposed to all of those pacifist zombies. Well, I, I'll stand by my statement because I feel that these zombies are the the crossed are violent, like no, they're no. Cho- they're choosing to do this. Whereas the Romero type zombies, it's more of like. I mean, they're not evil by nature. The Romero ones, they're just, it's just like a hunger. Like they're, they're not even, they're mindless. So yes, oh, no, no, no. Th- there is violence, but I would say that the crossed ones are actually like actively wanting to commit violence. No, 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 I, I agree. I just want right. to make fun, but yeah, they're, um, they have more, the crossed ones have more agency than even the, um, uh, than even the 28 days later zombies. Yeah. Uh, also, just briefly for saying no go Alan Moore, I do like the bulk of it. Um, but uh, Ballad of Halo Jones, I could never get into. And then Promethea. Um, the last book of, I've told you this, David, the last book of Promethea, I, I got into a little bit more. But so, and it's beautiful. It's, the artwork is fucking beautiful. So that that's its own thing. But I felt the bulk of that work is just Alan Moore up his own magic ass. It's just him like spouting off about magic theories and shit. And it's like, and the narrative was very light. 
I tried to reread it again and I was just like, I like elements of it and the art is gorgeous, but I felt it was one of his more indulgent works that was not like enjoyable to read. Conversely, I have, I have all the volumes in uh, the matching hardcovers. The only other thing I can really say that of his, that I have like multiple volumes of is I have all of Miracle Man and I have all of the issues of Beef of Vendetta. Like, those three are the top ones I feel for uh, mm. Alan Moore, and those are the ones that I made it a point to not just to own, like, to own either the issues or, in that case, the nice-looking hardcovers. Yeah, and I'm not place. even going to say that like it's a bad work. I just can't get into it and enjoy it, but I can understand why some people could. Uh, also, throughout that, his work for Image is pretty terrible across the board. Uh, I did read oh. all of that. All right, but we need to wrap up here. So, uh, lastly, can I find this? Showpieces is on DVD. Um, it is a British DVD, but I believe it is all region. Um, and the show is on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, now, Showpieces does not appear to be streaming anywhere. I couldn't find anything. It used to be on Shutter. But at, like I said, even if it were on Shutter or somewhere else, it's likely going to be Showpieces the cobbled together film of three of the segments, the main three segments, but that cuts out two of the segments. One is when faith arrives at the bar and oh. finds out like that she's, you know, in hell or whatever. And then the se other segment they cut out is the one with Alan Moore and his partner, which is like, has some of the most fun stuff and like dialogue wise and getting to see Alan Moore be a fucking crazy man. So uh, those segments are shorter <laughs> segments and those aren't part of it. But if you get the DVD, all five segments are on there. So I don't think it's streaming right now. I don't know how you can find it otherwise. Um, but like I said, if it was, it's probably going to be the quote-unquote film version. And then, uh, and then the show is streaming lots of places. It is on Stars, Apple TV, Hoopla, DirecTV, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, and probably several others. So uh, if you are interested in this, it's probably going to be hard to track down show pieces. Um, like I said, you can buy the DVD. It's kind of pricey. It's maybe like 65 bucks. Um, yeah, I know. I'm still probably going to get it, though. Um, just because, like, here's the thing. I'm not, like, blown away and loving either of these things, but I have so much of his stuff that I love that I'm sure I'll want to revisit both of these down the line. And it's like, I kind of want to have Alan Moore's film work. So uh, at some point I'll grab this and the show. Um, but yeah, show pieces, your best bet's going to be a DVD or like a torrent or something to possibly find it. But I'm going to warn you, not going to be easy on that. Um, and then the show is much more accessible and out there. Oh, and I, I forgot to mention, I think Moore and uh, the director, we keep focusing on Moore, but the director is Mitch Jenkins. I believe in an interview or several interviews, they commented that they do want to like turn this into a TV show if they can, that more has like seasons plotted out. Now, whether anyone's going to give them the money to do that, I don't know, but uh, I'm curious. I'm willing to, uh, to see what he can do. Um, and this movie does kind of end on a, like, it's not over note. Like, Fletcher Dennis even kind of makes comment of that, that, uh, yeah. that like, the, the nightmare world might still uh, be out to get them. 
All right, anyway, so that's how you can track down show pieces and the show. Uh, looks like the bonus features on the show Blu-ray include the um, at least the one from Shout Factory. They li- list uh, original short films. I'm going to have to track that down because that's way less expensive than getting uh, all of show pieces separately. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up. Uh, okay, so good to know uh, if those are on there. Um, thank you for that uh, little bit of sleuthing, David, our very own Fletcher Dennis here. And uh, <laughs> All right, so that wraps us up for show pieces in the show. We will be back next time, and next time we are going to do one of our uh, the one of the three special episodes we do a year. This is our summer blowout sale. Everything must go. Uh, we have done an April Fool's Day episode. We have done uh, a Christmas present present episode. This is the first time we've done one of these of a summer blowout, and so this is our third uh, where we will be focused on a very famous film. So switching gears and not doing something under the radar. And we are going to be looking at Midsummer. See you then.